We're making our way through the Bible. We happen to be in Psalm 102. I want to teach on this particular psalm because it is prophetic in nature, and it might be a whole lot deeper. You know, the Lord said, for the countless ages to come, and just think about that, into the millennium, into eternity. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this book will never pass away. And he's going to unfold treasures and nuggets that we may have studied for years, but he's going to say, well, here's, here's the rest of the story. Sort of like what he did with Cleopas and his friends when he rose from the dead on that Sunday morning, and Cleopas had given up, was going home, and uh, as they're despondent and in despair, the Lord appears to him. He said, why so sad, boys? What's up? He said, are you a stranger here? Don't you know what's going on? No, what's going on? Tell me. Well, Jesus of Nazareth, we were, we were disciples. We gave up everything to follow him. He's dead. We're going home. And he said, oh, slow of heart and foolish to believe all that the scriptures has to say about me. And then it says, beginning at Moses, he began to open up the scriptures to them and showing them all the places that talked about how the Messiah must come and suffer and die. He just laid it out to him. And as he was doing that, Cleopas says, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures to us? That's my prayer this morning, that um, there, I think there could be a whole lot more to Psalm 102, and I'll talk about that as I get into it. Our text, let's read, where Paul read earlier for us this morning, Psalm 102, verses um, 16 through 18. For the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. And he shall regard the prayer of the destitute, and shall not despise their prayer. And this will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Now we're in the Psalms. Psalm 102 is part of the fourth book of the Psalms. There's five divisions of the book of Psalms. And Psalm 102 happens to be in the fourth book. But our verses that we read this morning, what we can say clearly here is the text is clearly saying that when Israel is built up again, well, I'll mention this a couple times, twice in history um, Israel has been dispersed and driven out of the land. One was during Daniel's time and we call it the Babylonian captivity, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took him into captivity for 70 years. Well, they returned. Isaiah 11, verse 11, says that he's going to do it again, a second time. So I might mention this a couple times during our study this morning. Now, we saw that happen on April 14th, 1948. Almost after 2,000 years, they were regathered the second time. That was fulfilling Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. And what this verse is implying is during that second time, you see, Jesus didn't return after the first captivity, after the 70 years. They just simply went back, about 50,000 of them, and rebuilt what we call Ezra's uh, tabernacle or Zerubbabel's um, tabernacle. But this verse here is prophetic in nature, And basically what it says, when the Lord does it the second time, he's actually going to show up and appear. That's the clear text. And in context, that's what's being said here. Um, This uh, one verse where it says, um, this will be written for the generation to come, um, smacks with me thinking of Matthew chapter 24. Uh, For years... Um, I could only really hang my hat about pinpointing a, a generation in time that we could say we're living in that generation. And that we're going to go to a little bit later in Matthew chapter 24, uh, where it says, learn the parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and become, puts on leaves. You know that summer's there. Well, you know, March 21st, summer's supposed to begin the leaves are supposed to all be out. Usually it hits around Mother's Day, same time as the lake flies do. <laughs> lake flies on Mother's Day. That's how I remember May 15th. And uh, so the idea here is that you're going to see this sign. 
And when you see that sign, then the Lord says, know that it is near. And then verse 24, he says, surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take, takes place. So in, we'll get to that in, in, in uh, more deeper context as we make our way through God's words this morning. But just to give you, uh, I need to take a little bit of time and establish a little bit of background about Bible prophecy in Israel's history and what's happening in a very big way we're going to be praying for uh, this week as Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be addressing our Congress on Tuesday, March 3rd, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. But let me just go through some of the major events that the Bible records concerning the Jewish people and um, the prophecies that are tied in with them, and they'll be very familiar to many of you. But I can only give you a handful, just to make my point. Um, Let's begin with being delivered out of Egypt. We call it the Exodus. That was after 400 years of being in bitter bondage. The Lord finally brought them out. And it started there 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. It was a time of of, uh, complaining on their part of God miraculously providing water and manna on a daily basis for 40 years. That's all recorded. We have um, them eventually, after 40 years, entering into what God promised to them. That's what we call it, the promised land. They crossed over the Jordan, and they entered in, and it took Jericho, and eventually the rest of the land. We go into a 360-year period of time where they were ruled by judges, and it was an up-and-down cycle, and just like this. I mean, they do good for a while, and then they backslide. They do good for a while, and then they backslide. And every time they backslide, God would raise up a judge and help, help them get them back on track. I think of uh, Gideon and Samuel and some of the other judges that were during that period of time. But eventually they got tired of that. They say, we want to be like everybody else, so give us a king. And uh, it didn't make Samuel happy at all. And uh, the Lord gave them what they wanted, and they got Saul. He reigned for 40 years. He disobeyed the Lord, so he rejected Saul and raised up David. Looked after somebody who was after his own heart. David reigned for 40 years. When David died, his son Solomon came to the throne, and he reigned for 40 years. When he died... The kingdom was divided. Up till this time, it was one nation, just called Israel. But when Solomon died and Rehoboam came into power, there's a guy named Jeroboam who led a rebellion, and he took 10 of the tribes, 10 of the 12, and he went up north. And uh, the two remaining, Benjamin and Judah, stayed in the south. So for until they were actually taken into captivity, the 10 northern tribes by the Assyrians, Um, that's part of things that were prophesied and foretold that are very major events in the Bible that deal with with Israel. Then we find that eventually the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they, they backslid too, and the Lord raised up Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come and take them the first time into the exile. This lasted, according to Jeremiah, for 70 years. When you read the book of Daniel, he's there for the whole 70 years, from the time he's 17 years old till he's an old man. Uh, yesterday we were, we were in men's Bible study talking about, um, we, were, we were reading in Isaiah, and we were actually reading in Isaiah 44 and 45. And uh, it, it, it caught me because I knew what we were talking about this morning. And... Um, Hundreds of years before Cyrus was even born, Isaiah in chapter 44 says he's going to dry up the river and then he's going to call a guy by name whose name is Cyrus. That's the end of chapter 44 in Isaiah. And then there's no break in the divisions in the chapters. When you go right into chapter 45, it says, I've called you by your name and your job is going to be to let my people go back from Babylon so that they can build the temple. I mean, it's written right there. Now, we're told, we know that um, after the Babylonians fell, they fell in one night. 
And that's recorded in Daniel chapter 5 with Belshazzar, the famous writing on the wall. He says, this very night, you're going to die. And what happened was they diverted the Euphrates River that runs right through the city of, of Babylon. They couldn't go over the top. The walls were 300 feet tall. You could, you could ride four to eight chariots abreast on the top of these walls. Forget about going over the top. I need to hear an amen. <laughs> Forget about going over the top. They diverted the Euphrates and went underneath, just like it says in Isaiah 44. When they took the city without firing a shot, eventually it says that Darius the Mede took control. But we know because of Daniel chapter 2 that after Babylon, it's the Medo-Persian Empire. So you not only have Darius the Mede, but you have Cyrus the Persian. And he's the one who says he's going to give the order for them to go back now and rebuild the city. Imagine having somebody come up to you and say, Huh, and it's Daniel who does it. He opens up the Bible, the, the scroll, to Isaiah 44. And he says, this was written over 100 years ago. And here's your name right here. It says exactly what you're going to do. Dry up the riverbeds, go underneath, take the city. And now it says your job is to let the people go home. It had to blow the guy's mind, wouldn't you think? And here's your name. I will call you by name, Cyrus. <laughs> here's your job. Let my people go. And he did. And we have... The return, just like Daniel read, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 says, I, Daniel, understood by reading Jeremiah, 70 years are determined on the people. And just as God's word was fulfilled, um, we're going to see that again in Psalm 102 this morning. So they rebuilt the temple under Ezra and Zerubbabel. I could go on and on and on, but I want to lay a little foundation about their history. These are major recorded events. Some are obvious, some are not so obvious. Many of them have uh, Old Testament picture, New Testament picture application. Obvious one coming out of Egypt, delivered from bondage. New Testament teaching, we come out of the world, we're born again, we're delivered from bondage. Parting of the Red Sea, baptism. That's the first thing you do when you get saved, you're baptized. And then you begin your walk of faith. A lot of the similarities we could tie together. And what I want to point out this morning is some of these are very, very obvious. Um, Some have been fulfilled. Some have not yet been fulfilled. To further my point, let me point to a very obvious psalm that is clearly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I need you to turn to Psalm 22. And we would say this is a no-brainer for Bible students. My, my Bible actually has all the uh, prophecies about Christ highlighted in red. And I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in Psalm 22. I'm just gonna have you read with me the ones that are obvious. Psalm 22 is a psalm about Jesus on the cross. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he spoke that right from the cross. It's got our attention right away. That was 1,000 years before it actually was fulfilled. David wrote the Psalms about 3,000 BC. 1,000 years later, it was fulfilled. In verse seven, all those who see me, they ridicule me, they shoot out their lips, they shake their heads, say, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. They mocked him and that's exactly what they said. If you're God, then get us out of here. If you look at verse 14, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it melts within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shred, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs, a term for Gentiles, has surrounded me, and the congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. When this was written, capital punishment was not crucifixion. It was stoning. So here, even before that act, that brutal act of of capital punishment was put in place. It hadn't been invented yet. That didn't come for another 
uh, 700 years. I count all my bones. They look at me and they stare at me. Verse 17, verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. We could look at that and we could say categorically Psalm 22 is about Jesus on the cross. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? So that would be obvious. But what's not so obvious is Psalm 109 being quoted in the New Testament. So I'm going to have you turn there right now. Psalm 109. But I also want you to put your finger in Acts chapter 1. Psalm 109. We're going to read the first eight verses. But again, at the same time, I want you to, I forgot to tell Paul and the guys in the back room to mention Acts 1. But I do want to go there too. So let's make our way to Acts 1 there. But let's read, uh, first of all, the first eight verses of Psalm 9. And again, the reason I'm reading this is if I'm just reading this, I would, I would have figured it out that this is fulfilled in the New Testament. <clears throat> Psalm 109, do not keep silent, O God of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have spoken against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. They have surrounded me with words of hatred. They have fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I gave myself to prayer, and thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become a sin. Let his days be few and then let another take his office. And I'm going to stop right there. Now go to Acts chapter 1 in the New Testament. And we'll read verses 15 through 20. The background then is one of his own, Judas Iscariot, betrayed him. And what Peter does in Acts chapter 1, let's just read it, verse 15. It says, in those days Peter stood up in the midst, or the middle of the disciples, and altogether the number of them was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, the scriptures have to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us, obtained a ministry, a part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with his wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the midst, and all of his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called, in their own language, akel dama, that is, the field of blood. And then he does this. He says, for it is written in the Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no one live in it. And uh, then, Psalm 109, let another take his office. He quotes two different Psalms. Now, if I'm just reading through the Psalms, here's my point. Psalm 22, no-brainer, clearly about the Lord. But if I'm just making my way through Psalm 109, I would never have stood up like Peter did here and say, this is that which is written, and it's being fulfilled right here today. Let another take his office. Now, I'm quoting this because where we're headed this morning in Psalm 102, um, there are many other references in the Old Testament that don't tell you exactly how they're going to be fulfilled in the New Testament. We have shadows. I think, I think for example, of um, the Antichrist and Antioch Epiphanes. He does exactly what the Antichrist is going to do, and we, we sort of make the connection, but it's not really clearly spelt out until Jesus does in Matthew 24 with, with the Antichrist. Uh, we could talk about the tribulation, in the Old Testament, it's referred to there's a time coming called the time of Jacob's trouble. It doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. But the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 19 gives us a lot of detail. Uh, we could talk about the, the kingdom, the millennium. A lot of, of the book of Isaiah is about that. But it's all future. 
Now, some of these have been fulfilled. Some of them have not been fulfilled. All right, that's all background. Now, hopefully, with that much of a background, where I'm going to go this morning, let's go back to Psalm 102. We're actually going to go through it verse by verse. And um, as we do, I really can't call David Dolan my friend, even though we have a friendship. He was at um, oh, our, our prophecy conference several years ago, and he gave this study on, on Psalm 102, and I immediately wanted to talk to him afterwards about verses 16 through 18, and specifically the words generation and the words the generation to come. And I'll get to that. But he came to the conclusion that if most of the Bible is about the history and major events that are recorded, um, is it possible to read Psalm 22 as a new Christian and not get it? Oh, yeah. I was witnessing to a man the other day who's really open. And... Um, he, want, he, he, wants us, he wants me to give him assignments. We took him to church last Sunday, him and his wife, uh, to Calvary Chapel in Tempe with John Higgins. And uh, he doesn't know the Bible at all. So he says, okay, now what? He's been reading wisdom for today, every day. And so he's been getting that much nourishment. But, and I said, okay, you want an assignment, I'll give you an assignment. You know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? He goes, No. I've never met anybody that doesn't know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, if they don't know that, then the next question is, how about Peter, Paul, and Mary? Do you know them? <laughs> you know? I couldn't believe it. And I said, okay, you want an assignment? I'll give you an assignment. Uh, the next time I see you, I want you to read the Gospel of John. And here's, here's your assignment. I want you to, I, 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 if you would have known Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I would explain that they're the synoptic Gospels. They're similar. John isn't. John's completely different. John's gospel is based around seven miracles and seven I am statements. So I called them by name and I said, here's your assignment. I want you, when we see each other next time, you tell me what are the seven miracles and what are the seven I am statements. There's 21 chapters in John. That's your assignment. You got it? He says, got it. I turned around and looked at his wife. I said, you hold him accountable. And then I told him I don't judge on a curve. <laughs> I made him think it through. So, you know, my point is that um, there are a lot of people that unless you really, in these days, gang, unless you know your Bible, um, some of the stuff we're going to dig out here this morning, uh, I want to make this statement. 16 through 18, I'm dogmatic about. The generation that sees Israel rebuilt, the Lord's going to return. I'll be dogmatic on that part. What I'm about to say, I'm clearly taking... Um, uh, David Dolan's study. Let me tell you a little bit about David. And what he sees in Psalm 102 is actually being the Holocaust that took place during World War II. And as I began to think it through, the reason I gave you the background of major events that happened to the Jewish people, how can you not say that the Holocaust wasn't a major event in Israel's history? It is a major event. I've been there three times. And seen, and seen the atrocities of Auschwitz and, and Birkenau. And so as I really held his feet to the fire as he does a word study on Psalm 102, that's where we're headed this morning. And we'll look at it verse by verse, but let me just preface the study this morning by saying I'm not dogmatic about this. This could be one man's insight. Might be good insight, might not be. Um, but there are certain areas here that I can't refute his study in the Hebrew and the, the change of inserting the Hebrew word where it, it makes it look like it sure could be. So as we're gonna look at this this morning, it's with the view of an event that is history to us that happened 70 years ago, 1945 it was liberated, started in 39. And what the, the tragedy and where we'll end this morning is it's happening again in Europe as we speak. So, Psalm 102, verse 1. Let's read the first three verses. Well, again, David Dolan is an American journalist who has lived and worked in Jerusalem since 1980. His most recent book, Israel in Crisis, What Lies Ahead, 
He tells the reader that he gets many questions dealing with the modern Israel rebirth as a sign that the prophesied end of the age is coming upon us. The one portion of scripture that he quotes to verify this belief to those that ask the question is Psalm 102. After a time of personal study, he has come to believe that this particular psalm predicts the Holocaust and the subsequent restoration of Jerusalem, and that the generation that witnessed these events will be the generation that sees the Lord coming back to reign in his city. So now you know where we're headed. Let's see if it holds any merit. First three verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. And do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. And this is where he stops, and he challenges the text, not only in the King James, but in the New King James and other versions. It has a translation like smoke. But the Hebrew word in the Strong's uh, number 6227, is ashan, and to smoke, uh, either literally or figuratively, uh, it can be rhetorically used in the Bible to also describe God's anger. But a better translation in the Hebrew is in smoke. And instead of like smoke, it says, all my days are consumed in smoke. And that might seem to be a little word change, but not if you're following his train of thought through this, because the next verse says, and my bones are burned like a hearth. Now, note that Psalm 102, that the bones are burned, uh, and thus the smoke that is being referred to, if it's in smoke instead of like smoke, now the implication is to the reader that what we have in view here is the bones are burned and thus the smoke he refers to is directly related to this. In other words, his burning bones are the source of the smoke, so his days are literally consumed in smoke, not like smoke. Are you with me so far? I've walked through, Auschwitz is completely intact. Birkenau, before we could get there, the Germans almost completely destroyed Birkenau, except for the gas chambers at the very, very end of the concentration camp. However, Auschwitz is completely different. Auschwitz, they maintain to this day as a a tribute um, in Auschwitz. And of course, Yad Vashem in Israel has a lot of the artifacts that uh, came from there. All right, let's look at verses four and five. It says, my heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I have forgotten to eat my bread, and because of the sounds of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. Now, you've either seen Schindler's List, or maybe you've been able to go to Israel and visit Yad Vashem. And certainly, somewhere along the lines, you've seen pictures of literally uh, skin and bones, right? And when you see, when they were set free. Uh, They were so malnourished, many of them died of starvation. Well, David's contention here in verse 4 and 5 is um, when it talks about the the phrase, um, I have forgotten to eat my bread. Uh, He takes the Hebrew word there, forgot, in the Hebrew it's shakak, and it means uh, literally to mislay uh, for want of memory, of attention. Um, Brown Driver's Hebrew definition even gives a broader use of this word. And let me just quote here. In context, he, they would say not, not to forget to eat like, oh, I forgot to eat breakfast this morning. No, it's forget, ignore, and wither. Number two, to, to, to cease to care. Number three, to be forgotten, uh, cause to forget, to make or cause to forget, or to be forgotten. 
So in other words, here the context is that he forgot to eat it. He could have, no. They just, uh, it was, they, they, there was a cause they were forgotten. They were left on purpose to die of malnutrition. And if that would be a more literal interpretation of verses four and five of forget, and as far as uh, the bones clinging, well, again, we've all seen pictures of that. Let's move to verses eight and nine. My enemies reproach me all day long, and those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread. All right, the idea here is in verse 8, my enemies swear an oath against me. Again, a better translation here is that all the days my enemies, they taunt me, who deride me, they use my name for a curse name, is a better translation. Drew Jews, when the persecution began in Europe, the Nazis, when they occupied um, Europe, they were forced to wear a yellow star on their clothes. It was patterned after an ancient six-sided symbol connected to Israel's King David. The Jewish prophets foretold that the Messiah would come from Judah, David's family's tribe. And the yellow star had the name Jude, J-U-D-E, printed on them. This is the modern name of the ancient Hebrews, Jews, derived from the tribe of Judah. And uh, they were, if you were a Jew, a Jew and you found out about it, you had the star put on. Everybody's familiar with that? I'm hopefully nod your head if you agree. So during, to identify that you are one of them, you were, you were marked. And as a marked person, consequences are coming. We want to know who you are. We want to know where you are. And this is how we're going to identify you, you Jew. And so when it says here in verses um, uh, 8 and 9, they reproach me all day long, and those who derive me swear an oath against me. No, it's more derogatory than that. It's actually categorizing them and labeling them as Jews in a derogatory type, fashion, and name. And then in verse 9, for I have eaten ashes like bread. Well, those of you who saw Steven Spielberg's portrayal of the Holocaust and how it captured the aspect of what this verse may be saying the ashes of the remains of the cremated bodies billowed out of Auschwitz, out of their chimneys, day after day, raining down into the camps when the winds were contrary. And thus the inmates sometimes were forced to breathe it in and even taste the sooty remains of their fellow Jews. Now again, um, when I was at Auschwitz, uh, the gas chambers are still intact. And so are the ovens and the rail systems that take them in. Listen, guys, it's just as hard for me to say this stuff as it is for you to hear, just so you understand, okay? This is not easy to talk about, especially if you have friends like I do, like Zev Eisner or David Frank or some of my Israeli friends who, who have family, grandparents, and uh, that actually perished and died during the Holocaust. They can't talk about it. So this is hard to talk about, but at, at the same time, uh, I believe this is literally what it's saying. And I think David is on to something here, an event as big in the history, and it was so big that after it was over, it's the only time in history that the world softened up to the Jewish people. Very, very short period of time. And as a result of it, gave them a homeland to go home to. And it took the Holocaust, it took this brutality for the UN to soften up just enough to say, okay, we'll give you the land of Palestine. This did not happen until after these events took place. Now, what David Dolan doesn't comment on is verses 10 to 12. Now I'm going to tell you that we're leaving David Dolan and we're going on to Dwight Doville, <laughs> and I give you the same warning that I gave David. And about him, I could be spot off on this, but I believe the Lord showed me 
um, what 10 through 12 is actually saying. And you can take it or leave it with this. So let's read verses 10 through 12. Because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me away. Now he's talking about the Jewish people. They did something. You have lifted me up and cast me away, and my days are like a shadow that that lingers and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever in the remembrance of your name to all generations. Something happened that caused them to be cast away. And um, this is where I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. And in Jesus' own words, he explains to them why the Jewish people have to go into captivity a second time. We do this Bible study every Palm Sunday, so many of you are going to be familiar with it. You know the part where they worship him in verse 38 as being the Messiah. Hosanna, blessed is you, comes in the name of the Lord. That's 38. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees are all too well aware that they're saying Jesus is the Messiah, so they rebuke Jesus, saying, tell your disciples to shut up. They think you're the Messiah. And the Lord said, sorry, I can't tell them to shut up. Because if I tell them to shut up, the stones would immediately cry out. Because this day was a special day. This was the day that was appointed in Daniel chapter 9. That the Messiah would be revealed. And if the scribes and the Pharisees were doing their job, they would have been preparing the people to say, hey, by the way, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be doing a lot of things only God can do. Nicodemus understood that. He says, you're different. Because you do things that only God only God can do. What do you got? I want it. So Nick got it, but the rest of them were jealous because they were losing the attention that was being taken, put, put upon the Lord and taken away from them. So they don't care much for Jesus. All right, mood change in verse 41. From Hosanna, praise the Lord, to Jesus. And the only time in the Bible, twice it's recorded that Jesus cried. Here's one of them. Jesus drew near and he began to weep over Jerusalem. Why would he be crying? And he said, oh, if you had only known, even especially in this your day, the things that could have been for your peace, but now they're hidden for your eyes. Now the day will come upon you. Now he begins to prophesy. Basically, he's saying, you should have known. They should have been teaching you that this particular day was foretold by Daniel, and you should have been looking forward to it but now it's hidden from you, and now consequences. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another. This is what happened in 38 years later. Jesus said this in 32 AD. 38 years later, in 70 AD, this is literally fulfilled where not one stone was left upon another in the temple. You can go and see it today. They, they've, they've cleared it off. They've taken away all the dirt all the way down to a street level. And when you get to the Temple Mount, here are these huge stones bigger than this pulpit square. And they, they're there, left from 70 AD, just like Jesus said. But now he gives the reason, because. And remember, Dolan didn't comment on verses 10 through 12. But here, Jesus himself gives the reason. Why in his anger is he displeased? Why was he weeping? Why would they go into captivity? In verse, say verse uh, 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's quickly go back to Psalm 102, lest we make the connection here. Verses 10 through 12, that you're going to be cast away uh, because of something that they did wrong. Hosea, in chapter five, the Lord says, I'm gonna return to my place until you repent of your sin, singular. Talks about one sin, not sins. And he says, when you repent of that one sin, then I'm gonna come back again. Well, what was the one sin that Israel committed? Well, their very Messiah came. And they missed it. They didn't see it. And Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That happens, by the way. 
But my point, and uh, David leaves it out, I thought I'd tackle it 10 through 12. I think the reason for the indignation, the dysphoria, the reason for the second exile is clearly told to us by Jesus himself in Luke 19 because they didn't know the time. And now we'll pick it up with our text. All of that is making it where David notices in verses 13, 14, and 15, there's a different tone. Everything's been pretty gruesome up till this point. But suddenly in verse 13, there's a sudden change as we see the restoration now of Israel. But before we have the restoration of Israel, there had to be this traumatic event. And um, let's face it, a lot of us got saved because of a traumatic event in our life. Somebody want to say amen to that? You got saved because, because something happy happened to you. And then you got shook up a little bit. And the Lord got your attention. Well, before they could have a homeland, the Lord allowed, and a lot of Jews are atheists today, because of the Holocaust, how could our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how could he allow us to go through such uh, torment uh, as this? And does the Bible have anything to say about it? I think it just might, right here. And what it now leads to, beginning with verse 13, it's future tense. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. When you go to Israel today um, and you look at Jerusalem, that phone call to Mary was for a purpose, to put this picture up on the screen. And it's a picture of the walls of Jerusalem. That's called Jerusalem stone. And let me just read a little bit about Jerusalem stone. In Jerusalem, it must be off-white Jerusalem stone to give the modern city the ancient, timeless, and quite intriguing look. It further explains the effect it has when the skies are blue and the sun is bright, as on most days the city uh, of Jerusalem reflects its golden hue. It's great getting up early in the morning, climb to the Mount of Olives, which I've done, and watch the sun come up and shine on, on the wall and just watch it turn all these different beautiful hues. You have to build with Jerusalem stone every building in Jerusalem, no exceptions. You're not gonna get a building permit unless you're using Jerusalem stone. And notice now we went from this terrible atrocity to now we're back in Jerusalem planning a trip for this November, just got back last November. And when you're there, we go and one of the first things we do is have an overview of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Judy and I were having dinner with John and Shauna Higgins. And we were talking about our trips to Israel and stuff. And, and uh, Shauna says, well, look at John's wedding ring. And he holds it up and it's made after the Wailing Wall, taking pleasure in the stones. We are living in a time right now where this is being fulfilled. There's a change. But again, the the reason for the change is, is the Holocaust. Again, it opened up this period of time where the UN, for the first time, actually said, what are we gonna do with these Jews in Europe? And on May 14th, 1948, after the Jews started coming back to Israel, in one day, Fulfilling another prophecy, we have Israel becoming a nation. All right, that was all background. <laughs> you ready for our text? We finally made our way up to it. They're back in the land. And then, now that they're back in the land, it goes on to say, when the Lord does this, when he builds up Zion, which is just another name, it's one of the, mount, one of the seven mountains in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Mount Montevallo's, Mount Scopus. When the Lord will build up Zion, well then it tells us he's going to come back again. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and will not despise their prayer. 
And then he says, this will be written for the generation to come. Some yet future generation is gonna see this fulfilled. Well, what got my attention, and uh, because I only have one parable in the New Testament, and we'll be going to that, that tells me that we're living in the generation that the rapture of the church is gonna take place and not the last generation, and please understand this, not, we're not talking about the end of the world. We're talking about the generation that's gonna see the rapture of the church take place and the beginning of the tribulation period. So you wanna give me an amen or not? We're not talking about, you Christians are always talking about the end of the world. No, the end of the world's not coming for another 1,007 years at the most, okay? For 1,007 years, this, this planet is here. The sun is going to rise, the moon is going to, so on and so forth. And the seasons will be the same. What we're talking about here is that this generation, and, and this, is, this is really what caught my attention with, with David Dolan. And I've, I've really gone over this. I called Mary when we were in Arizona. I said, I want you to do a heavy-duty word study on verse 18. And I want you to prove Dolan wrong with the Hebrew word that he uses here, because, and I'm just going to read this and let it speak for itself. According to Strong's Dictionary, Acheron means to hinder, and it can be translated more correctly as last. And then, in this, using this rendering of last generation, although the word anachor means that, it would have been a daring move indeed for any translator to render the word as such as I imagine. Do you see what he's saying here? If they take the literal word, which is last, that would be a very, very gutsy move for anybody translating the Bible because of the implications. Because what's it saying? It's saying this will be the last generation. And when I heard David use the Hebrew word here and say, no, this is exactly what it means, this shall be written for the last generation. That's, there, there's a finality with that. But there isn't a finality when it says this will be written for the generation to come, future tense. Much more passive, wouldn't you agree? But you stick last in there, you're talking heavy-duty stuff. You're pinpointing a time? Well, yeah, Jesus pinpointed a time to the very day he would come. Do you know that the Bible pinpoints the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ? Pinpoints a day. Go to Daniel chapter 12, read the last three verses. And 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation, there comes the Lord, right to the day. So I don't have a problem at all. Uh, I do think the word that David uses, they wimped out. The translators just couldn't bring themselves to put, because you can't have um, um, later as a translation. Um, But... He's persuaded, as I am, that what you have being said here, when Israel comes back again, that's it, gang. The generation that sees that, that is the last generation. Now we'll go to Matthew chapter 24. New Testament. Now we don't have the psalmist David writing about it. In Matthew 24, interesting chapter. The Lord would have given this Bible study the week before he would have been crucified. I want you to notice verse three for starters. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be, notice, singular, the sign of your coming and the end of the age. I want to stress the single of the in front of it. We're not talking signs. We're talking what is the sign of the end of the age and your coming again. Well, what the Lord does is he gives a whole bunch of signs plural, doesn't he? He talks about nation against nation. He talks about famines and pestilence and earthquakes. Four times he warns, he says, look out for false teachers. Look out for false doctrine because it's gonna be prominent And he gives a whole list of things to look for. But there's one sign that he singles out and he ties it into a certain generation. And that is the parable of the fig tree 
in verse 32. So it's only three verses long. Let's read it. He says, now, after he's talked all about uh, the abomination of desolation, that event in history happening, now he comes back when he's finished and he says, now, now learn this parable of the fig tree. Pastor Chuck has a video that you can go online and watch this day called the parable of the fig tree. It's all about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Now learn the parable of the fig tree when its branches already become tender and put forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, know that it is near at the very door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I went up to David and I said, David, for years I've hung my hat on one parable, that this is a generation. He says, I agree with you, Dwight. The, the fig tree is Israel. I agree with that. I says, but I never saw what you're talking about this morning in Psalm 102 with the last being inserted instead of generation to come, that it's actually the last. There's a, I had one pastor come up to me and says, well, you just don't have enough to hang your hat on. You can't just take the parable of the fig tree and say, that's the sign. Well, it is the sign, singular, the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Sometimes I tell people, you want to see a modern day miracle? Go to Israel. See a people that have been uh, out of their land for 2,000 years and do a probability study of any, any nation that has been dispersed for one or two generations and they lose their national identity. Have you seen a Philistine lately? How about a Hittite? How about a termite? There's a lot of ites out there, you know. They just cease to exist. They are assimilated into society. But somehow the Jews, against all odds, have come back and the one sign that Jesus said, when you see that happen, is Israel budding? Yes, yeah, it's the third largest producer of fruit in the world, about the size of New Jersey. Their technology is off the charts. They're running out of Europe right now, and they have to, but they don't want them to because they're the money and the brains in many of these major cities. They, they are the CEOs. They are the ones that are the cream of the crop as far as, as, far as intelligence in whatever field they happen to be in. Which leads me to try to wind this all up this morning. And that is Isaiah 11.11 has been fulfilled. Israel is back in the land. And if I understand our study as we make our way through the Bible, there's hints of it all the way through. I personally agree with David Dolan's assessment of Psalm 102 being about the Holocaust. If you don't, that's fine. And I will... um, you certainly, I would respect your opinion on that and wouldn't argue a second. I would with 16 through 18. That is clad and, and clear, it's crystal to me. That, that's referring to when people see that, that's what Jesus said, when you see it, that's when it's all going to happen. Well, uh, verse nine of 24, and I, this is how I'm gonna end the study this morning, just go back to verse nine. He says, one of the signs of the last days Matthew 20, verse 9. You will be delivered up to tribulation, and they, they're going to want to kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my sake. We once were the best friends of Israel. Somebody want to say amen to that? Past tense. This week, Tuesday, March 3rd, Benjamin Netanyahu is going to come before Congress. He's already being shunned. Biden's been sent on some mission trip somewhere else, and many of them are asking to boycott him being here. Yesterday I was watching the news, and I I had to go get my pad and paper, and I took some notes. Because in the interview, they were interviewing Alan Dershowitz, and they were interviewing, on the other side, Jeremy Ben Amai of the New York Times. And he said... And this is one point of view in the news today, as I'm talking to you right now. They're talking about this meeting before Congress with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. 
On one side, this guy from the New York Times, Jeremy, says, Bibi's visit's nothing more than a political campaign, and that's all he's here for. And uh, the second view from Alan Dershowitz, he says, this is the most important policy in the last century. Israel is our friend, and we must stand by them. The headlines in, in this report uh, use these two terms to describe what's going to happen on Tuesday. Tense, and we're at the boiling point. Those are pretty strong words. As these three articles are, this is what's happening, and if the study is true, and it's as late as we think, it's been 70 years since the Holocaust, then I suppose we should be looking for a rise on anti-Semitism, right? Well, this one says, Europe increasingly targeted Jews take stock. It's a whole article. In the article, one of the things that I underlined here was, every Jew I know has left Paris. Everyone, every Jew I know has left Paris. Well, why are they running? This one, front page magazine says, Jews, get out of Europe. Well, you can. And what we're having is a repeat where the Jews, once again, are being marked. Well, they don't have the yellow star on. But if I, would, I read this one story, I'm running out of time, so I won't. Um, a reporter that was Jewish um, went into a neighborhood. He says it's pretty much safe to walk, you know, near the Eiffel Tower and so on and so forth. But you better not go to the uh, um, rural part of town because as a little boy was told by his mother, he said, Mom, what is, what is that Jew doing here? Doesn't he know he's going to get killed? And some, some people are saying it'll never happen again. I'm saying that the, Jesus said it is going to happen again, and they're going to be hated by every nation. The last sign, and I think my job is to do what the scribes and the Pharisees didn't do, they didn't stand up and teach the book of Daniel and tell you that this is prophecy that's going to happen. That's my job. Now, you could take it and do with it what you want to, but now the ball's at least in your court, not of mine. Are you with me? All right, having said that, it's interesting to see where most people's heads are at in these last days. And the irony of our enemy, to, to put it right in our face. You know, our, in men's prayer yesterday, we were in Isaiah 43, And don't think the Bible doesn't have sarcasm. It does. And we were reading, he says, you men of Israel, what are you doing? You cut down a tree. Half of it, you cut the wood up and you make your supper. And then the other half, you take and you make it into a God and you worship it. And basically say, how dumb is that? Right? Half of it, you cook your supper with. Read Isaiah 44. And half of it, you make an idol out of it and get down and worship it. That's dumb. Would you agree that's dumb? That's dumb. Well, all I see on TV this week and last week is the accolades for people who are gifted and are worshipped as actors. And what do you get for your reward? Oh, a little golden statue. Interesting, that is all made of gold. Doesn't that make you think of Daniel chapter 3? Nebuchadnezzar's rebellion, one golden image, if you don't get down and worship this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're dead. And I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. What are we enamored with? The day afterwards, I said, finally the thing is over. No, it's not. Somebody stole the girl's dress. And it's got a lot of pearls on it. And we can't find it. It's got worth $150,000. And that's what they had on all the next day. Then they found a dress, and I go, good, they found a dress. Now you know what the conversation is? What color is the dress? Is it blue? Is it gray? I think it's blue. And I forget which star it was who had rose-colored glasses on. He took it off. He goes, oh, maybe it is that color. You know, what's my point? It's sarcasm. But it's sad also. When one of the most important policies that's going to be in our history takes place on Tuesday, and we're talking about some Hollywood gal's dress, we're in a sad state. Don't let it happen to you. Talk to your friends. Don't be, don't be afraid to say, this is what's really happening. And we're living in a time where we should actually live what we're, we're believing. Amen? I'm out of time. So let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. I just pray, Lord, for a balance 
for the congregation and the people watching live stream right now. Lord, we want to um, go through your whole word. We don't want to pull any punches. We want to be able to speak the truth in love, even when it's a difficult subject to talk about. But either way, whether or not this applies to the Holocaust or not, either way, you're the one who told us to be found watching and waiting, for we know not the hour of your return. So, Lord, use your word this morning to exhort us to just keep our place and our priorities straight, not in Hollywood, but in the pages of this book here. And bless your people as we go out this week. In Jesus' name, amen.